which turns mm-hmm. into who the f- is Scorsese? Who oh, the yeah. f- is Paul Thomas Anderson? <laughs> what, what's the, what the f- is the Godfather? What the yeah. f- is Citizen Kane? Like, it, <laughs> it, I like it, it turned into this thing where I just became like movies was my life. First I got your voicemail, then I got you. We can meet in person or maybe on Zoom. So tell me what your genre, tell me what do you do? I'd like to know the things that specifically make you you. Hey, I'm Tim Barnes. You are the genre. And in each edition of the show, I ask people about the first genres that inspired them, the first crafts they pursued, and how they feel about those pursuits now. Comedian, filmmaker, and Saturday Night Live writer Stephen Castillo joins me this episode. But back when I met him in Chicago, he went by Stephen King. Wonder why he changed his name. But before we dive in, I want to thank everyone who's been listening to the podcast so far and sending me kind words about the interviews. It's a weird thing, booking, interviewing, and editing something like this, and I'm sure a lot of creatives identify with that feeling of making something only to ask, is this really anything at all near the end of the process? And you'll hear a bit of me figuring out what the show is really all about in these episodes, which means, yes, you'll likely hear me tell the flubber story one too many times. But another interesting phenomenon in these early interviews is that many guests tend to ask me why I'm doing this. And I love that because that's how I know that I'm doing it right. The show is about the layer below the facade, the story behind the premise, the person behind the genre. Now, I talked to Stephen Castillo back in December of 2023. At the time, he was a former Saturday Night Live writer. But then on January 5th of this year, he posted an update on socials that he was returning to Saturday Night Live, which means this is a unique glimpse into what it's like to be in the limbo of Saturday Night Live writerdom. Did You Are the Genre have something to do with his return? Probably not, but it's fun to think you did. Hey, just listen to our conversation and judge for yourself. How you doing, man? Good, good, good. I just, I cannot hesitate enough. Please be natural when we're doing this, all right? (laughs) I just, like, it would really, like, set me in a weird headspace if you didn't seem like we were Like a normal guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you say this often when you go on podcasts, or, or is this a genuine thing you're expressing right now? Well, here's the thing. Nobody used to book me on podcasts because they looked at my stand-up and be like, I don't think he could be naturally funny. He has to have <laughs> pre-planned bits. And, yeah. and and I think there's a, there was a stigma around me for okay. many years. But now I I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting so much better at it. Nice. You've I, cooled down a bit. I will say I saw a couple things before this interview that were like, oh, my goodness, like something about seeing you in a 92nd Street Y doing conducting an interview with Melissa Villasenor. I was like, oh, my goodness, Stevens is sophisticated now. He's uh, he's (laughs) that was I didn't know what the that place was. Uh, And then I walked into the green room and it's like pictures of like Hillary interviewing like and Obama, and it's just like me. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing in the world. And then I look, I, I, I read the comments on YouTube because they put it online, and there's like a few people that are like, uh, they should have got Heidi Gardner. 
Like what the? <laughs> what? Are you, what? <laughs> what? The rudest hardcore. The world. Yeah, hardcore SNL fans are strange too. I think they're beautiful. They're beautiful. They're wonderful, but they're a little strange. And I am somehow like in a couple. I think when Ian started doing his uh, his Saturday night quarantine, our friend Ian he did this thing on Twitch when quarantine first started, where he was alone in so a cabin funny. somewhere. I did some stuff for those, and then I got into this circle of people who are like they have like a DM thread, and I get all kinds of random up. I, I never I never talk in it, but I get all kinds of random updates of like people who are just like who probably get like an alert whenever SNL tweets or whenever like whenever you tweet, probably get an alert as well. So. <laughs> Yeah, the yeah. fact that you've entered that world <laughs> is amazing. Oh, it, it was it was horrible. Like SNL Reddit is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> they would be like, Andrew Dismuke started at exactly four sketches more than he did last week. I'm like, yo, that's psychotic. <laughs> what the, the hell? They're like a beautiful minding um, who gets on a who gets on a sketch. <laughs> Yeah. Truly, like I have more empathy for QAnon people than some of those people on the SNL Reddit. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, yeah. so I saw that video of you on 92nd Street Y, and then the second video, and then I stopped it because I was like, you might be revealing stuff that would come out in this interview. And I made that mistake before, where before I like get coffee with someone that I've reached out to to get coffee with, I'll listen yeah. to a podcast with them, and then I've heard all their stories. And so then oh. I'm kind of. I'm kind of bored uh, when I hear them again because people don't have more than a few stories. We 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 act like we have more, but we don't. Uh, but the other video we I saw was you. Five. And Tim, sorry, real quick. If I if I feel free to call me boring, and I could stop the story and try to do like a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's nothing more humbling than being a person who says, "Have you heard this story from me before?" Uh, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> But the other video I saw before this interview was you dressed as Sonic for an hour long podcast. And I was like, so that I think that's the impression that gives people like maybe this guy can't be natural in a podcast. (laughs) I got to be honest, Tim, lowest point of my career was doing that podcast. (laughs) Dressed as Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, And I watch it and I'm like, I'm. I also chugged a White Claw right before, and it was just like, just like really, that was like my Britney shaving her head moment. Was it connected to something in your life at the time? Is this, is this actually like a low point for you somehow? Oh, yeah. It was like right after the strike ended, and okay. uh, basically nobody wanted to like <laughs> – I I was like, it, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, you know how like the strike ended and we just assumed that we were all going to get jobs once it was done. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, that's no, definitely what everyone's parents is doing. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's this is nothing worse than like everyone who's been like rooting me on during the strike after it ended. It's like, are you back to work? Like, no, yes. I was I was fighting for the opportunity to to search for work for reasonable work again. It wasn't like. You wake up and you, you got, you got it, it. It was truly like the Avengers five years later blip, you know, <laughs> where everybody comes back and like, what do we do? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It felt great when we just had like one unified enemy to, to fight. I'm curious. We met in Chicago. Uh, well, I moved to Chicago 
in 2012. When did you move to Chicago? I remember you oh, kind of wow. being. You moved. Wow. I thought you were there a lot, a lot longer than I was. I was, I just moved a year after. Okay. 2013. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember that sensation of um, you being like a new a new kid on the scene. And something about <laughs> Chicago, I haven't been back in so long, but there there was like such a clear hierarchy and this almost like a medieval system that I'm I kind of love. Like compared to New York, there's a clear ladder to climb <laughs> yeah. to at least Chicago stand up success. Like there are like different kingdoms. It's the most segregated city in the U.S., so there's different, like, styles in each of those little camps. But, you know, you want to get on Comedians You Should Know. You want to get in at the Lincoln Lodge. You want to do all these different – get the Laugh Factory open there, all those different things. But I remember you popping up as a, as a guy who also made a lot of weird videos because I was co-producing a show. Everything sounds so – seems so hazy when I think back on Chicago. Double feature. <laughs> called Double Feature, which was part short films, part stand-up. And mm. you were highlighting stuff on those shows that made me think, oh, this kid's like a little Stephen. First of all, you're Stephen Castillo now, but at the time, you're Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's. I think these were videos you were making with your brother or your siblings or something, and it made me feel like you were a little bit of a Steven Spielberg as a, as a kid. Whoa. Wow, thank you. Wow, I'm I'm getting a little emotional now. That's the nicest thing. <laughs> I do want to, um, well, I will say my first year in Chicago, the people that I looked up to were like Ian, Ray Holub, and you were like oh, wow. people who were like, I was very much inspired by like if these guys are killing it and making it, it made me feel like they would be receptive of the stuff that I wanted to do. So it was like very inspiring. That's, yeah, that's, that's amazing to hear. Um, yeah. And I clearly don't know how to handle compliments, but uh, to, <laughs> to get to, um, <laughs> to get to the core of this um, podcast, that makes me wonder the fact that you were making really funny, bizarre videos. What was your, what was the first general vague amorphous genre that drew you in for me it was like science fiction because of things like flubber and stuff like that but what was that for you well tim i've been thinking about this question all day because i knew it was coming and (laughs) i i have a new story for you one that i've never told anyone (laughs) and this was the story where my life changed forever okay okay and it was summer of 2003 and my uncle, who I'm very close with, would take me to a movie every weekend. So, like, I saw, like, Devil's Advocate. Like, I saw, like, Boobs at six years old for the first time. Like, I was watching R-rated stuff, like, way too early. Um, <laughs> so, we go see movies every weekend. And we had a very difficult decision that day at the AMC. There are two movies that we were thinking about watching. One was called Kill Bill Volume 1. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah. oh, that might be good. Action, you know, could be fun. And the other movie was Scary Movie 3. <laughs> and we didn't know it was a difficult decision <laughs> that, for that us to be like. It really is, yeah. Because like Scary Movie 3 like is going to bring the funny, you know? Yeah. And, and I love movie references and stuff like that. But we ended up going with Kill Bill Volume 1. 
And I was 13 years old and I left that being, that was the greatest movie of all time. And it started a deep dive of like, who the f- is this Tarantino guy? Which turns mm-hmm. into, who the f- is Scorsese? Who oh, the yeah. f- is Paul Thomas Anderson? <laughs> what, what's the, what the f- is The Godfather? What the yeah. f- is Citizen Kane? Like, it, <laughs> it, I like, it, it turned into this thing where I just became like, movies was my life. I wanted to yeah. make movies. I love the feeling of my favorite place on earth is the movie theater. That's like heaven for me. It's going to the movies. And nothing beats that feeling of audiences reacting to something at the same time. Like most mm. recently seeing Barbie opening weekend and seeing just a crowd of people that are dressed up and are like loving this <laughs> shit. It like It like warms my heart. You know, even though like that's not for me, like I'm not a big like feminist or anything, but uh, I, uh, I I was dressed as Barbie, but I'm not a feminist or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going dressed as Barbie and then having to see Oppenheimer like right after. (laughs) Yeah, I should have done it the other way around. But yeah, so like then I became a huge cinephile i started making like movies with my siblings and i made that this puppet action movie which was part of my senior project which by the way i'm very proud of it i also got a b that was my final project (laughs) i got a b on that yeah you got a b on that that's your senior you're saying that's your senior high your high school senior project and you got a college college senior college college okay and is this online anywhere because i really only have like vague memories of it but i remember it really blowing me away um, it's called hard felt and it's still on youtube it's still okay okay y- yeah made it it's about 10 years old and yeah we we worked we put a lot of work into that and and that was a cool experience because at film festivals i got to see people laugh at the same time and react to that and that was like the best feeling in the world you know people yeah. clap at the end it was like Man. Do you worry that some of those tangible experiences are fading away? Because I imagine part of this journey was going to the video store or finding, you know, the, the video section at Barnes and Noble or Best Buy or whatever. And now we're in this age where Best Buy is going to stop selling DVDs and Blu-ray and yeah. everything is kind of you have to you can still search for it, but it's all on streaming services or, you know, it's all on this one device that you do everything on. So the well, search for it is, is a little less exciting. The flip side to that, to counter that, is like I think a lot of young people are going on TikTok and if they love movies, there's a lot of people recommending weird movies that you probably would never have found at Blockbuster. And now everything mm-hmm. is like easily searchable, you know? Yeah. So I think Discovery is still – there but yeah you do miss the feeling of just going to a room and having like the physical media and the one the guy who's sort of like the gandalf of the video store who just tells you all this you know has all this (laughs) wisdom of stuff you've never heard of yeah right and but i mean that person just like lives online now you know i think that doesn't bump me too much because even like in the 2000s like i knew what was good because I was, I had access to the internet, you know, so I wasn't renting random. Uh, I was only, I was only watching movies that were nominated for Golden Globes. Okay, <laughs> I, had, I had taste. <laughs> 
So this was your first dream uh, to be a filmmaker, it seems. Would you say the first official craft that you pursued was being a director? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It, it was being a director. Uh, I was trying to get into USC film school because that was where like George Lucas went and all those people went. Oh, yeah. And I, they, they asked me about how many awards I've won. And I've, I'm like a senior in high school in <laughs> Oklahoma. I haven't done yeah. Oh, I did a YouTube video where my little brother and sister reenacted the the bear juice scene from Inglorious Bastards. Can I put that in there? That's yeah. I never uh, knew what the process was, but I also fell into the myth of USC because I grew up right around there, and that's the same neighborhood my dad grew up in in South Central LA. Oh wow! Um, and when I became a Star Wars fan, this myth of this introverted guy who made this major movie, who went to this school, um, really stood out to me. And the fact that it was just like a few blocks away. So it's interesting that that, that fascinated you as well. You didn't get into mm-hmm. USC, but what, what school did you get into? Well, I didn't even finish my application because I felt overwhelmed. It asked to send a final project. One of my friends from high school started doing stand-up, and I filmed a documentary about the open mic scene in Tulsa. And from that, I dared myself to go up on stage. And that was like discovering you were like good at football. And I'm like, oh, I just got to keep like, I'll just keep doing this thing because I'm I have I'm good at football and I want to get a scholarship. And that's kind of like where my life kind of shifted. Was there any um, conflict between those two pursuits for you? Because I'm actually in a bit of the same boat. I mentioned like Flubber. I used to want to be a mad scientist when I was a kid because of... <laughs> Movies like like Flubber, because I read the novelization of the upcoming Robin Williams movie Flubber. Um, Yeah, this is true. And then as as time went on, I was like, I can't. I knew that you have to be good at math to be a scientist, and I I was not good at math. And then I, I I believe that the pursuit of wanting to make movies was because I realized like, oh, what's really exciting me here is this movie that's coming out. And I I was always reading like novelizations of like sci fi weird, goofy comedy movies and stuff like that. So that ended up being like sort of the thing that I wanted to do. I wanted to be a filmmaker. And then when it eased into stand-up, that kind of became the thing where it's like, oh, yeah, I want to be able to tell a concise comedic vision on stage. And getting those laughs is very satisfying because you feel heard in a very particular way. But I also, it all goes down to like I had an email called Tim Barnes film. And I had an email called Tim Barnes comedy. I used to, I still do stuff like that where I have like different things online for my different personalities. And I wait to see which one gets more popular. And comedy yeah. was always the one like comedy always ends up being the one that sticks around. Well, as you know, comedy is stand up is instant gratification and it takes forever. It takes so many resources to make a video or make a film that like stand up immediately we gravitated towards because like, you know, all the attention is on us. It's more accessible and the highs are insanely high. But real quick to your thing about how you saw Flubber and it made you want to become like a mad scientist. <laughs> uh, I, I You gave me a memory. Uh, before I wanted to make movies, I wanted to learn how to dodge bullets. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, because you wanted to be Neo? Is that what? <laughs> yeah. I, I would go to school dressed up as Neo and oh thinking I could see, I could see the, the, my the goodness. In hindsight, stuff. that's the scariest thing you could dress up as when you go to school. Um. Oh yeah. It, it, I, I, I look at old pictures of me from, and I'm like, oh yeah, I straight up give Columbine vibes for show. <laughs> But I, I also have weird memories of just like kind of pretending to be a Sith Lord at school where I put on my, you know, I put on, put on my hoodie as if it was like Darth Sidious's cloak. And it's something, yeah, something yeah. about like walking around and like being moody in this very particular way. I don't, I don't know what that, what that is. Dude, we, we are so similar. I remember watching Revenge of the Sith and being like, maybe in high school I should become evil. <laughs> but uh were you just like oh it's cool i'm good at this i'm gonna pursue that did that kind of put filmmaking on the back burner for you it did it did it it, it felt immediately from my first set this felt like a calling this felt like i was supposed to do this which is weird because I had to learn to like stand-up comedy because I didn't like it, and I still don't. Like, I, <laughs> I, it's not my favorite art form to consume. I still kind of struggle with that a little bit because I feel great when I'm authentically myself and I'm putting on like a performance and I'm giving people something – that is different than what they normally see in a, in a, in a regular show. But then there's times where it feels like, and this is my own insecurity where it's like, well, that's not what people came to see, you know, like they, (laughs) that they expect, you know, now they expect me to like have to talk to them, which is a (laughs) nightmare. (laughs) Jesus Christ. What has happened to the thing I loved? Yeah. But I, I, I did like the journey of like, let me be the most different person here. Let me be like a little stinker and a little curmudgeon. This gives me joy. Mm. And, and, and honestly, like for me, it always seemed like, well, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to get a special, but hopefully I could do SNL. Oh, wow. Okay. I just want to talk a little bit more about standup because I'm, for me, I'm, I'm doing it a lot less. And I think it comes from some similarities to some points you were making about like, feeling disconnected from the form a bit but for me it's yeah. it's feeling disconnected from the end goals of it like it used to, my goals were so tied to things like a a conan set or building up to the idea of a, a special when specials meant a little something different and now that yes. things have changed uh, pretty dramatically there's you know we know we know people who've done late night sets and got 10 followers afterwards and uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and so that shifting of the <laughs> shout out shout out to yeah. jeff sheen <laughs> but, but, but it's more i think it's it's more than that like i i miss an element of um like i i remember i was uh i took a couple of years at santa barbara city college because they had a good film yeah. program and then i kind of fizzled out of college moved back home with my parents I was working yeah. at a movie theater, very miserable. But I remember that was when Conan had just gone to TBS. And the way that I would religiously tune into that show and get 
specifically excited about the stand-up comics showing up. It was oh, wow. um, a feeling of like showmanship and a sort of grand entrance to a certain thing. And that generation of comics that like popped up on that TBS show in particular, they ended up kind of like taking over, you know, the idea of what comedy is right now. Like people like Ron Funches and Pete Holmes and Rory Scovel yeah. and all those, all those people. I, I remember Bo Burnham's set was like, yeah. Incredible. So you got to SNL, which feels like a full circle of a, a number of things. You've fantasized about being a cast member. You like filmmaking, which is a lot of behind the scenes sort of work. You auditioned to get on SNL. You didn't get on as a cast member, but you became a writer. There's two parts of that. There's one that you didn't get to SNL in the way that you exactly wanted. But in a way, you're writing scripts. They're comedic. And you're doing all this, you know, you're talking to actors, you're communicating with people on set to bring this vision to life when one of your sketches gets on. Did you feel a sort of completeness uh, when you got to that point? No, because my ego was so big and I felt like I failed, weirdly enough, because I was thinking I, I knew how to write for myself. And I wanted to perform the things I was doing on stage in front of like an entire audience. So I felt like a failure for a long time. And I, and I had to like figure out like, why did I want the top job? And, I, and honestly, it was like, I just want to see, I think it was like, I had to like be honest with myself, be like, I think I just want to see my name on Variety. <laughs> I, I want the, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I think I wanted like to feel like I was now in the Mount Rushmore or like I've made it to the top, like, because being cast means different to us than like maybe the new generation. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it seemed like it was like, it felt, it felt like, okay, this like solidifies that you made it. But again, it was like, I didn't know what sketches I would do. I didn't know what characters. I just wanted the announcement. I just wanted to see like my face on a thing to show off like, look how cool I am. <laughs> and, and I think like now, like having so much time away from it, you know, it was, it, it was healthy for me to leave and I'm sorry if I'm skipping ahead, but like to kind of like acknowledge that myself, you know, and that ultimately everything I did at the show kind of led to where I am now kind of goes full circle where I'm doing, I'm kind of entering my, my Steven Spielberg mm. again. That's great. You know? So you, um, you left SNL, right? When did, when did you leave? Are you? You left it, right? <laughs> I'm actually at work right now. Uh, uh, <laughs> Lauren is looking at me like he's like, "What the?" F um, no, um, I I left uh, 2021. January 2021. I think both times I went to SNL was thanks to you, and my memory of the first of the first time I went just being. You know, it wasn't in the audience, just being in the writer's room. And my vision of like what it's like to be in the writer's room live while the show is going on was very different than the reality. It was very quiet and um, strange and not much conversation happening. It was kind of like if I were to watch SNL with 
my grandparents who've never heard of SNL. Uh, <laughs> the the energy was like all of the scientists in Oppenheimer before the nuclear bomb test. <laughs> yeah, <happens>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> People sweating like crazy. And then um, the second time for me, it was it was in, it was I was excited to go the second time because I had my first foray into sketch writing, but in a very different way because I had just started writing at the revival of all that. So it's a kids sketch show that is still in mm-hmm. front of a, a live audience, but it's a live audience of kids and everything. You know, mm-hmm. the sketches are not necessarily like the same sketches that were taped that day what gets packaged into the episodes. But I feel like I finally had like, it was, I was excited to go see what things are like at SNL just to compare it from this strange um, way. And when you took me to the uh, after party and you pointed at Lauren Michaels sitting at an ominous table in the distance, I was genuinely fearful to, to, I, I never turned my head. I was fearful of the idea of looking him in the eye for some reason. Cause I, <laughs> cause I, <laughs> Wait, wait, you're, you're telling me Kenan Thompson's not that way on the set of all that? <laughs> yeah, he just has an he has an ominous table in every room. So you and you, you, they tell you never look, never look at the table. Um, <laughs> but I feel like I could see a bit even then of what you're talking about. See this sort of frustration that you were dealing with at the time, but thinking back on it now, how do you feel about those feelings that you had? Do they bring you guilt in a way? Well, I had the privilege, you know, I think, I think a a question I assumed you would ask or at some point like, is, is like, if I could go back, would I do things differently? Hmm. You know? And I had the privilege of going back (laughs) like recently. I was there a month ago. Okay. And it was like Gandalf the Grey turning into Gandalf the White, you know? Like, I I have come back with wisdom, you know? And in between me leaving and coming back during the strike just to make some money and I couldn't do anything, I started teaching sketch hmm. writing classes. And I found, I, I found that I really loved doing that. I loved uh, encouraging other people and facilitating and and building people up and just like feeling a little bit like the old dog but just like giving Mm. you know and when i went back i was very much like this isn't about me anymore this is about me helping everybody else this is about me making the cast look the best it possibly can this is about me like knowing what the cast is going through and just reassuring them thank you for doing this i see you i hear you mm. uh, and reassuring the writers and the producers it was less about what do i get out of this you know and i i loved like i could watch the show and then not feel jealous of the performers or the writers that wrote that sketch that was funnier than mine i felt very like proud of myself that i i felt like through years of taking time away i was able to fix some of the things i know it was only for one week you know what I mean? But like come in there with like a like a different perspective. Like in basketball, there are MVPs that won all these awards. And then when they get older, they're not as good anymore. But mentally, they don't know that. And they keep trying <laughs> to chuck up shots and they're horrible. Yeah. But, and the good ones are the ones who accept that and come off the bench and help other people shine. They're looked at more fondly in the long run. 
but I wouldn't have known that. I had to go. I had to go through some. It's also like Tim. It was like my first industry job. You know, like that's a big deal. It's a really hard job. It's there's no math to like coming up with good ideas. You could be. I was here in this room yesterday trying to do that, and I was going crazy. And then I came up with two good ones in the shower. So it was tricky to be like 27 navigating through that. Having said that, I made a very conscious decision, like leave out the front door, be very grateful that you got this opportunity. And in a way that like certain people towards the end, they're like bitter that they didn't get everything that they, that they didn't get everything that they wanted. And then they're vocal about that. And then like, and then you see them headline the comedy strip, you know Mm. what I mean? Like, like you see that, like, I I wanted to make sure that I showed the people the love and and the appreciation because you know at the end of the day like it changed my life forever. Don't scroll away. You are the genre. We'll be right back after the break. You are the genre is currently an independently produced podcast, which is my way of saying I haven't figured out how to get actual ads in here yet. Instead, I'll mostly use this little break to promote stuff that I've been loving. And speaking of genre, one of those things is a podcast hosted by Dave Marr and Madeline Lane McKinley called Genre Reveal Party. I was on an episode last year about Gerard Carmichael's Rathaniel stand-up special. Dave Marr also has a podcast called This Is Your Afterlife, which I also was a guest on last year. See, Marr is a coma survivor, and he talked about it once in an episode of This American Life. And on his This Is Your Afterlife podcast, he dives into authentic discussions of how comedians, artists, and activists imagine the afterlife and more. If you're enjoying this show, I'm sure you'll dig those as well. Lastly, Freddie Nunez, my friend and musician who made the theme song for You Are the Genre, has an excellent new single out called Missing You and a country album titled Trains of Faith. Click Freddie's name in the show notes to fall down the rabbit hole of his music. Now, back to the episode. Where were we? I want to know how you dealt with a shift in the minds of your peers who didn't have a s- similar success. There is a shift, right? I've felt that in certain certain ways in my own life as well. And when I visited you at SNL, I kind of felt like, oh yeah, you've been dealing with uh, <laughs> with the ramifications of of this shift because just the act of doing a very kind thing and bringing a friend to the set. Um, it feels like that can come with a bit of baggage or like there, there are times where you, where you might bring a friend who's bitter, who's jealous of you in an intense, like in an intense way, even though you've invited them well, to the show. Luckily, all of my friends have been doing a very good job of hiding it because <laughs> I, I haven't experienced that, uh, maybe a little bit to some degree, but like, you know, it's bittersweet when you bring a guest because Tim is a Tim is is one of my very very close and good friends from Chicago and I'm so glad to see him at the same time I'm so stressed out because I'm worried if my thing is going to make it on the show or not uh-huh. or I'm upset that it got cut at dress I'm going through I'm like sleep deprived and I'm going through like a whirlwind of like emotions so you have to host meanwhile you could be having like the worst night of your life at least it feels that way you know to use the star wars metaphor it's like that part in dagobah 
where Luke goes into the dark forest and he goes crazy killing Darth Vader, you mm-hmm. know, like 30 rock could feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> like it could put you in a, in a, in a, in a trance, you know? So at what point did you make the shift from Stephen King to Stephen Castillo? That wasn't really my decision. Like it was a crazy thing where, uh, I got JFL in 2017 and the the guy who used to run it that no longer runs it, Singer, mm-hmm. uh, he basically, when you get JFL new faces, you're not allowed to tell people. So I can't really get advice from friends and stuff like that. Because if it comes out, they, they, they take you out of the festival. So he's the he's my only like point of contact that I could talk to. And he told me he would highly recommend me changing my name which i thought was mafia talk for you need to change your name <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. it sounds like it was i mean jeff was a he was like the most important person like the level of nerves that everyone had at all those jfl auditions he was the guy in the back of the room wearing the fedora that could that could make or break your life <laughs> yes the gatekeeper <laughs> yeah. uh and uh, so tom Takar had done it a few years before me as Tom Brady. And then he hated the fact that his name was Tom Brady. So I was like, change my name. So like, I kind of like forgot. I like put in the back burner. And then like, right before I was about to go, like two nights before, he was like, okay, cool. So we need to have your new name now, like on the phone. So like gun to my head, I have to like change it. You know, I always wanted to take my mom's name or to like, you know, I used to live in Mexico and I and I'm and I'm proud of that. And people don't think I'm Mexican, so it'd be mm. nice to have that, which is a whole different conversation. Uh, like, because there was part of me that felt kind of gross about it too. But I was like, ah, f- you! I f- lived in Mexico, so suck mm. my. F-. Uh, but anyway, my mom's maiden name is Hernandez Ariola. So there's a comedian named Steve Hernandez in L.A., and I didn't want to have the same name. And I wasn't going to be Stephen Ariola, <laughs> Stephen Nipple. So, at, like at the last minute, I was like, "Was my mom's favorite soap opera actress Kate Del Castillo?" All right, I'll just go with that. I'll go with <laughs> Stephen Castillo. So, I, I, this isn't even like um, this. You, you named yourself after your mom's favorite soap opera actress. Is that what you said? Yeah, and here's the f***ed up thing. I don't think she's even in the top five of my mom's favorite <laughs> soap opera actresses. That is amazing because I was, I, I mean, it, it did dabble in the sort of poetry of your heritage. And I really thought it was directly connected to that. But it's also, it kind of connects to everything we're talking about, though. This is someone that your, <laughs> your mom loves watching on TV and, and you work yeah. in TV. The first craft you pursued was being a filmmaker. So now you said you're kind of, uh, are you getting back? Are you making more films now? Yeah, I'm in the process of like working on some secret projects where I have to like basically put that hat on. And also at my time at SNL, one of the things that me and my writing partner, Dan Bulla, focused on a lot was like making the video shorts. So we were basically making short films almost every week at the show, like music videos and and stuff like that. And that was like you know, you have a very talented director, but also like as a writer, and you know this, Tim, you kind of also have to be a producer of your own thing. 
Yeah. So you kind of have to have your hands in everything, right? Directing, sets, props, all that stuff. And and my favorite moments is just being on set. Loved being on set. I love that this show could spend so much money to make something so silly and stupid that from my brain. And <laughs> and like you have like Oscar nominated actors doing this thing and it's like it's cool like it it was like the thing that i did recently this uh sequel that we did to tiny horse giant horse like to me feels like we made a movie like like it feels so much of my everything that i love high concept with a little bit of heart over the top silliness like that's the person i wanted to be when i was mini spielberg and i got to do that at the show, you know, and I got to do a lot of little, little things that I'm proud of that I could show to people that feels like this is my aesthetic, you know, yeah. I'm very, very proud of that. And, and I don't like to compliment myself. <laughs> that reminds me of, um, I forget where I read this, but there was this great article about um, Jordan Peele, where he was still a cast member at Mad TV. And um, this was around the time when Barack Obama was running for president. For the first time, I think. And he auditioned at SNL because they were looking for an Obama guy. And they wanted him. But the people at Matt TV wouldn't let him out. And in this article, he says that uh, he, he was so devastated at that point that he decided to be very strategic about being someone who could control what's happening behind the scenes with everything that he does. And I bring that up because what you're saying about you know uh, making the digital sketches at SNL... That reminds me of like the genius of what they were were doing with Key and Peel, with how cinematic most of those sketches were. You can kind of track yeah. how he how he carved this very specific path for him to the point where you know I think he spent like eight years writing Get Out, but when he's on the set for that film, all of those skills that he has from being an actor on a sketch show to directing very cin- or being a part of the creation of very cinematic sketches all come together in this one perfect film. So I feel like you have kind of dabbled in all those things as well. So I can't wait to see what you're working on. And- well, thanks, Tim. And like Jordan, like Key and Peele, they were like doing parodies or doing genre stuff there. So he was practicing all of that stuff, you know? When you play with genres in a video sketch, the trick is to just commit to the genre. Make a horror movie, even yeah. though it's a parody. You know what I mean? Make a superhero. Yeah. Make a make something like if it's sci-fi, make it cool as because that's going to sell the joke even yeah. better. You know. So I have I I get so excited when I get to like make that stuff. Now it's like I, I don't think it's ego so much because I think it's like this is the stuff that I want to put out to the world, and I want like as an audience member. I'm trying to make stuff that I would like to see. When I when I think of it like that, I feel like um, I'm better at what I do because it's coming from a good place. And it, it, it just generally feels like you've reached um, a very healthy sort of zen. And I'm very happy to see that uh, sort of glow about you right now. I remember seeing like videos and photos from did you tape a sort of special? You had a big show recently, I think, at Littlefield. And even just like looking at images from that, I could I could tell that you were just like relieved of a certain pressure that you had on yourself at one point. Yeah. No, that I mean, that was again like we reenacted the ending of Oppenheimer and Tommy <laughs> Mack showed up as Albert Einstein. Uh, and 
and we did like the whole Avengers Endgame portals where <laughs> I ran out of material and then comedians came, but it was all canceled comedians. So it was like <laughs> Bill Cosby as Black Panther and Shane Gillis and all of that. Like movies are my life. Uh-huh. And I try to play with the cinematic stuff like on stage is like was uh, exciting and fun. And I can't wait to do that again and just keep exploring that. Yeah, I, I I think also like I don't know about you Tim, but like I I think I'm still twelve years old, bro. Mm. I'm still twelve, and I'm just making the stuff for that twelve year old that just needs an escape. That's the best feeling in the world, and the fact that you're so in tune with that is great. Because sometimes I fall astray from that, but when I focus on what would make the kid version of me happy, or what am I doing right now that would absolutely blow my mind if I were a kid and knew that I was that I was doing that right now those always like bring me back to like the exact um, right space you mentioned um, Quentin Tarantino as like the first director who kind of opened the door to other directors and it feels like maybe a through line or like what you've gathered from just the Quentin Tarantino of it all is that his personality is injected in all of the movies, no matter what the genre is, no matter what the particular <laughs> focus of it is. Do you feel in tune with your voice? Do you feel like with this movie project that you're working on or all of the your live performances and the sketches that you make, do you feel like there is a Stephen Castillo nature that's coming through all that stuff? I, I hope it's a bit more subtle than Tarantino. <laughs> like Tarantino <laughs> wants to let you know that it's his movie, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, um, you're definitely not going to see me in a movie saying racist things. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I don't know. Like, you know, I, first of all, I, I, I am like a Tarantino stan just because, like, I felt like I grew up with him. But maybe there is. I try not to think of that like too much because, again that's when you fall into the ego thing mm. where it's like, I want people to know this is me. And, and as opposed to, I want to make this awesome. That's awesome. Cause I, I think like what I was saying earlier about, you know, wanting this feeling of a grand entrance, you wanting your name on variety and a lot of stand up feels like I just need everybody in this scene to know how funny I, how funny, how funny I am. And as exciting yeah. as those those feelings are to chase they don't always bring the best results well tim it's not even just like i want people to know how funny i am it's like i want people to know how cool and sexy i am <laughs> you know like that is the craziest thing it's like now you have to be like an instagram model oh yeah like you know what i mean it's like i like I, I just had a great time at this show and it's like, I just, do I just take a picture of me shirtless or something? It gets like a million <laughs> likes. I'm so confused by this. I know I sound like an angry old man yelling yeah, yeah, at the yeah. sky. Like, God damn. But yeah, I'm like, thinking, yeah. It, it, it's, it's like content, it's content and, and quantity feels more important than quality. And yeah, and it, the fact that you love cinema and you love that feeling of a group of people laughing in a theater feels like you just, you just want to, get people back to a communal thing. Cause the thing about making comedy for the internet is that, you know, it's, it's people scrolling on the toilet 90% of the time and they might find a joke of yeah. yours. And, and it's a, it's a very different laugh when people are sitting in a, a seat amongst others in a theater or if they're sitting alone yeah. or with others in a toilet. Yeah. Um, so, yes. uh, 
I think the last uh, nugget of information I think uh, to get from you, and you've kind of sprinkled a lot of this throughout this conversation, is what are some of the the key things that you've learned in your journey to reach this place? Are there are there any things that you do daily? Are there any things that you just kind of generally keep in mind? There are things that I think I need to work on. I don't know if there are things that I'm doing so well right now. Uh, I really, I think the pandemic isolated me from so many people. And I really need to work on hanging out and seeing friends again more often. That's like a, a steroid for me to like bounce off of other people, you know? So I guess I would say it's like, if you're going to do this, you have to ask yourself like, why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you want to, you want people to know you're cool or do you want to do this because you love it and you love that you're giving something to the world? You know, some people, that's just, that just helps me to remind myself, like to quote Logan Roy, do it because I love it. And, and Tim, by the way, I I found out that that uh, I think Tom Wisdom came over to your place to watch Succession. Yeah, and um, and it's like speaking of friends things. How am I not there with you guys? <laughs> Holy! <laughs> shit. Well, don't you know that was my jam. <laughs> I, that's the thing. I, I think uh, I'm I'm uh, totally in the same camp as you in terms of not being good at socializing, especially after the pandemic. And a part of that is because. As someone who is a is a bit more of an introvert, the the real purpose of live comedy for me was that it was something that I enjoyed, but also an excuse to just have constant friction with and like be in spaces with people. There's, I wouldn't, I would never go to as many bars as, as I've been to if it wasn't for stand up, and I would never know I as know. many people as I do if it wasn't for stand up. And when that kind of evaporated, it wasn't that I missed going places that I, and I missed having a place to go to because I like that, that need right. to be there. Um, so yeah. if succession ever comes back, um, yeah, <laughs> you're invited, but it's also like, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, maybe it's a little bit of that, that weird Chicago stuff where I don't, I don't think we hung out a lot there and it might've had to do with whatever weird hierarchy things there were there. But, um, yeah. Yeah. It's good to know right. that. Well, thank you for being on my podcast. Steven Castillo <laughs> needs a friend. <laughs> hey, <laughs> wait, I, I agree. And, and it's harder when you're older, you know, um, I, I want to ask you a question. And on top of that, we all love Tim. Who doesn't love Tim? Uh, and we all, I think this is a great idea and I love doing this, but I wanted to ask you like, what are doing this podcast? What are you trying to uh, get out of it? Because this is a very, I did not know that this conversation was going to be as personal and <laughs> which I love. Don't, you don't have to delete anything. Uh, I don't think I said anything inappropriate or burning. I don't bridges, think so. But, no. but yeah, that's my question to you. Um, I really love cutting through the noise and I feel like the, the noise that people are creating now is, um, Maybe dangerous is the wrong word, but it's. I feel like a lot of people are in extreme de- denial of a lot of the changes that are happening that's affecting TV, movies, live performance, all this kind of stuff. Kind of what you're talking about with like the churn of like the this need or pressure to 
produce all kinds of content. And I just genuinely want to know where people are with that because I'm in a strange place with it. And I, I think having conversations with people about how strange this space is with all of the rapid change was very, will be very helpful for people and very helpful for me. And, um, yeah, that's really it. It's, it's, um, and it's, it's trying to be content that's anti-content at the same time. Cause I think my old podcast, which feels like another version of myself, um, was trying to be something. And I think this is, is, uh, just being, and with all of the changes with like social media in particular, I realized that you kind of have to create your own personal Twitter in a way. And so hopefully this yeah. invites people into a space where, because um, it'll be connected to this newsletter thing that I have, but where it's just like, oh, if you want to enter the realm of Tim, this is this is one of the things there. And that's it. It's not, you know, too much pressure. It's not, you know, maybe there'll be mugs, but uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Well, it's funny, Tim, because you you and I both worked in legacy media yeah. for a period, and we're seeing a massive shift, you know what I mean, where it's like somebody on social media is like way insanely popular, but then we might not even know who they are. And we grew up where we knew all the famous people. Yeah. We watched yeah. TV. <laughs> That was the only place, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and the magic of that, or yeah, the and the strange nostalgia that we have. Um, I, I, I miss yeah. cube-shaped TVs. And what my idea of fame is literally Whoopi Goldberg, because she is the gold star of fame, because no one knows exactly why they know who she is. And that's the, that's the most beautiful right. thing. Is she a comedian? Right. Is she a Broadway performer? Is she an actress? Is she... <laughs> Is she a talk show host? Truly. Yeah. Is she a hyena? Everything. Anything's possible with Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. It, 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 you missed that. I, I, 100%. I mean, remember when comedy movies were a thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Goldmember like, grossed like $300 million? <laughs> God damn. Yeah. And that's a big thing that I miss. And, it, it, and trying to put specific words to it because it, it feels like I'm always talking about the monoculture, uh, which feels like an embarrassing thing to keep bringing up. But I kind of miss that. And it feels like everything's coming back to that in a way. And they're just going to name it something different. Like all the streaming services are pressuring people to get the lower tiers because they actually make more money from the ads than they do from the <laughs> from the subscriptions. So and yeah, it feels right. like, you know, what I really miss is time slots and limits and uh, this feeling of everyone has to watch this at this one time. And I don't know if that makes me um, a fiscal conservative when it comes to entertainment or if it, or if, that, or if you know what I mean? So all that stuff is, can I make an optimistic prediction? Yeah. Uh, I think we will be entering a indie boom next year. I hope so. The, the number one video game right now is an indie video game made by five people. It's outsold Call of Duty. And A24 was filming a bunch of their movies during the strike because they were allowed to. And some of the stuff that I've heard that they're making is original, high concept, crazy shit. And I think like one of those movies is going to gross like $400 million. It's going to outgross whatever Marvel movie came out this year. And then all of a sudden... We're going to get a bunch of new 
new a new batch of Paul Thomas Anderson. I think I think that's coming. The Stephen Castillo joint <laughs> we'll will see. come out. <laughs> Stephen Castillo. Stephen Castillo presents Super Smash Brothers. The movie. <laughs> well, that'll definitely get your name in Variety. <laughs> Want more from Stephen Castillo? Tune in to Saturday Night Live this year and, I don't know, type his name into various websites. Freddie Nunez created the theme song and Adam Smith produced it. Comedian Millie Tamarez of the Go Touch Grass podcast joins me next episode. But if you become a paid subscriber to my newsletter, you can listen to it a week ahead of the normies. This is Tim Barnes signing off with your weekly reminder that you are the genre. First I got your voicemail, then I got you But we can meet in person or maybe on Zoom So tell me what your genre, tell me what do you do I'd like to know the things That specifically may